The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Great to have you here. Hope everybody had a great weekend and a great Mother's Day, even though it was an unusual one to be sure. Uh, DanProfShow.com is where you can follow us, get podcasts, as well as you can get them on uh, Spotify and iTunes, at DanProfShow on Twitter and Facebook. And we begin with the leaked phone call, leaked in quotation marks. Uh, The only thing I'm curious about with respect to Barack Obama's phone call uh, with his uh, administration alumni is whether or not they provided Michael Lizakoff at Yahoo News, the actual time codes for the clips they wanted him to run. Uh, Here's Barack Obama reacting to the dropping of charges against General Flynn by the Department of Justice. The news uh, over the last 24 hours, I think, has been somewhat downplayed about uh, the Justice Department dropping uh, charges against Michael Flynn. And the fact that there is no precedent that anybody can find for uh, someone who's been charged with perjury uh, just getting off scot-free. That's the kind of stuff where you you begin to uh, get worried that basic, not just institutional norms, but uh, our our basic understanding of, of rule of law uh, is 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 uh, is a risk. Well, that dissertation, you know why he was largely silent during his tenure on the Harvard Law Review. Look, uh, first of all, Flynn wasn't charged with perjury. He was charged with lying to the FBI. It's a distinction and a difference. Secondly, there is precedent actually from his administration with uh, Eric Holder and uh, in the Ted Stevens case, the former senator from Arkansas, uh, from uh, Alaska, that is, in, in addition to that, um, the whole thing strikes me as uh, a preemptive misdirection play, preemptive damage control, because a couple of things are look to be look to be in the not too distant offing. One is the unmasking of whoever illegally unmasked General Flynn. And uh, two is the uh, understanding that President Obama was aware of, if not directing, the counterintelligence investigation into his successor, his campaign, as well as his administration, to wit, General Flynn, and what precedent that set. It sort of cuts against the corruption-free administration narrative President Obama would like Uh, attached to his administration for the annals of history. What do I mean by that? We talked a little bit about it last week. Let's punctuate it. Uh, The comments made on cable TV news shows by the Clappers and the McCabe's and the Susan Power, excuse me, Samantha Power and the Susan Rice. Listen. What a great case officer uh, Vladimir Putin is. He knows how to handle uh, an asset, and that's what he's doing with the president. Do you still believe the president could be a Russian asset? I think it's possible. President Putin's got a very high return on his investment. He's taken a series of steps that had Vladimir Putin dictated them, he couldn't have mirrored more effectively. 
Big statements from your director of national intelligence, your deputy director of the FBI, your U.S. ambassador to the U.N., your national security advisor. Those are the four people you just heard from, Clapper, McKay, Power, Rice. And what do they say behind closed doors while under oath? Uh, do they reiterate their Manchurian candidate conspiracy theories? Not exactly. Jesse Waters reads from the transcripts. James Clapper, quote, never saw any direct empirical evidence. Samantha Power, I am not in possession of anything. Susan Rice, I don't recall evidence to that effect. And Andrew McCabe on the SEAL dossier, uh, we have not been able to prove the accuracy. And that doesn't even get into the missing documents, uh, Michael Flynn's, General Michael Flynn's 302, the original 302. Devin Nunez spoke to that on Maria Bartiroma show. Uh, and um, uh, some of what Trey Gowdy had to say on Hannity, which we'll get to in a minute. But now we're pleased to be joined by John Yu. He is the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Professor Yu, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, Dan, thanks. Good to be with you again. So, um, uh, General, uh, excuse me, uh, Attorney General Barr dropping the charges uh, against General Flynn. Was that was that the right call? And uh, despite Chuck Todd's uh, very creative editing of what uh, General Barr had to say, uh, was that in the interest of justice, as General Barr argued? When you look at the facts that we just learned about last week, I think so. Uh, the most important one is that lying to investigators in and of itself is not a federal crime. As if lying was a federal crime, the FBI would be busy just in Washington, D.C., catching all the politicians and lobbyists. You have to lie in connection with some underlying federal investigation or crime. That ha- something, something material is the word in the statute. And that's what the documents showed last week that the Justice Department filed when it pulled the charges was that there was never really anything Flynn was being investigated for. He'd not broken any laws. He was a transition official talking to the Russian ambassador about something you would expect them to talk about. And so that's what raises a lot of disturbing questions, is because if he wasn't, if he hadn't committed a crime, wasn't suspected of committing a crime, the counterintelligence investigation on him was being closed, then why was the Obama administration's holdovers really going after General Flynn. And we saw some question amongst FBI officials saying, we're trying to get this guy to lie so he'll resign. Uh, Are we trying to get him? Uh, It seems to me what they were really after was trying to use him to get him to flip on higher administration officials. But it looks like, and this is exactly what the FBI is not to do. They're not supposed to be interfering in elections. They're not supposed to be investigating the primary candidate of one of the other major parties for president. And when you um, when you also consider the uh, the uh, Mueller investigative team and uh, the FBI not disclosing certain things like, for example, uh, there is a duty to disclose potentially exculpatory evidence to the defense. Yet uh, special counsel Mueller and his team did not disclose to General Flynn that the investigators who initially interviewed Flynn did not believe he was lying. Oh, yes. There's a lot of mistakes, I think, that were made by uh, the Justice Department prosecutors here. Uh, That's part of it, is not um, turning over evidence. But also it goes to, if you look at how Flynn was originally interviewed, they were up to something. Uh, For example, the FBI came over 
and uh, to see Flynn, and they didn't even really tell him what the point of it was. Flynn would have assumed that the FBI agents were coming to talk to him about things having to do with his job. You know, the FBI is part of the National Security Advisor's responsibilities. They didn't really warn him that lying was a crime and that he should be on notice if that's what they were asking him about. He thought it was a friendly briefing, and even after that, the agents thought that he wasn't lying. And it was only when Mueller came in that the the fact of Flynn uh, lying to investigators or not, it's not even clear he was, that's only then when it came up. It seemed at, at first that no one thought Flynn was guilty of anything. So all of the procedures, the Justice Department alum, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed that the FBI and these just smart prosecutors engage in these kind of shenanigans. Well, you don't have to um, uh, interpret uh, perhaps the political uh, the, the political angle that President Obama is taking in that phone call, the clip we just played. But what about the legal argument that he's advancing, that uh, this uh, dismissal of charges against Flynn strikes at the very heart of the rule of law? Oh, I think it goes uh, quite the other way, actually. I don't see why uh, the rule of law is threatened. In fact, I think it's strengthened if our Justice Department makes a mistake and then it willingly pulls back its charges and admits its error. That's what you want from a rule of law. The thing that strikes me as banana republicish, if you call it that, is when one losing party uses the power of prosecution, the power to investigate, ultimately throw people in jail, to investigate people just on the other side of the aisle. And as it turns out, this is not uh, you know, conservatives or Republicans making this claim. This is what Bob Mueller found. There actually was no evidence of any kind of conspiracy between Donald Trump's campaign and the Russian government. It turns out that was all made up. And that is what smacks of a threat to the rule of laws when something like a steel dossier, something like partisan opposition, when just dislike of a candidate from the other party can flourish into a serious serious investigation that ruins people's lives and threatens to throw people in jail. Uh, yeah, I want to pick it up right there uh, and uh, loop in Sidney Powell, who is uh, the defense attorney for General Flynn. Uh, right after this break, we're talking to Professor John Yu, the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. We'll be back with more right after this. Why don't we steal away? Why don't we steal away? Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Just to put a fine point on what we were discussing in the first segment, Trey Gowdy was on with Sean Hannity, and uh, he recounted the questioning that he put to those senior Obama administration officials about Russian collusion, how open-ended it was. Anything under the sun related to Russian collusion, you didn't have to have evidence of it. Anything you even heard, please disclose that as uh, perhaps a line of further investigation that needs to be taken. And here's what he got as compared to what you heard from those same individuals on the cable TV news shows where they became celebrities and often paid celebrities as we uh, played in the first segment. It wasn't just that we asked Susan Rice and Samantha Power and Ben Rhodes and Sally Yates 
We didn't just say, give us all the evidence of collusion, coordination, and conspiracy. I ask every one of them, even if it's hearsay, even if it's something you heard that you didn't believe, even if it's inadmissible in court, tell me everything you've ever heard about Trump, his campaign, or even the groupies and the hangers-on in his campaign conspiring with Russia. There was nothing. So my expectations of Adam Schiff are very low. He still doesn't meet them, but they're very low. My expectations of the D.C. media was a little bit higher, and they aided and abetted him for the entire year we conducted this investigation. And, God, you went on to talk about the uh, three groups of accountability and um, in terms of the source for any accountability that may or may not come. The voters, they have a chance to say whether or not Adam Schiff reflects their values or Swalwell or anyone else who perpetrated this fraud. Uh, There's the media, and they totally abdicated their role. And then there's the executive branch. Unfortunately, we're waiting on John Durham because the media, not only did they not provide scrutiny over Adam Schiff, they aided and abetted him. Politico, The Hill, Washington Post, New York Times. I'll come on and give you the reporter's name sometime. The reporters who sat there and helped Adam Schiff perpetrate this fraud. Next time I'm with you, I'll give you the names of the reporters. General Flynn's uh, defense counsel, Sidney Powell, suggests this goes all the way to the top, meaning President Obama. And there's some basis for that. Key dates, January 4th to January 6th in 2017. And per documents that have now been made public, uh, per filings in court, uh, we have a meeting on January 5th in the Oval Office that includes Comey, Brennan, Clapper, Rice, uh, other NSC officials, uh, Yates and uh, and Susan Rice confirms in a separate memo that Joe Biden was also at that meeting. So uh, it's not only a matter of uh, full reckoning for the precedent that was set under the Obama administration regarding investigating a political opponent and using all of the uh, apparati of the state to do so. It's also the fact that you have a nominee for president of the United States right now who was uh, involved or at least knowledgeable because he was in meetings that were on topic. For more on this, we're pleased to be rejoined by John Yu, Emmanuel Heller, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And uh, John, we were discussing that before the break. The the precedent uh, that was set, that is one thing, and that's a serious thing because that can go the other way uh, with a different administration, Uh, say President Trump on the way out, uh, whether it's uh, in 2020 or 2024, he can play the same game that Obama played. You don't I mean, if you want to set that precedent. But but number two is because you have a part, an active participant at some level. We don't know exactly what level who is a, not a major party nominee for president in 2020. Oh, quite a great. There's several things we should worry about for our politics. One is the how high does this go question? The filings that the Justice Department entered last week show that this goes at least as high as Jim Comey. Uh, and he uh, seemed like a person who didn't think any of the normal rules applied to him. But then what's equally worrisome is that the acting attorney general, who I don't necessarily agree with on most anything, Sally Yates, who was an Obama holdover, uh, she reported that it seemed like uh, the president and Jim Comey had already discussed the case and knew all these facts about General Flynn and so on before she even got involved in any of the meetings. So that's one worrisome thing. Is, is this setting a precedent? I really hope it doesn't of presidents directing investigations of the people who follow them in office. When in the past, one of the amazing things about American history is that we've always had peaceful transitions of power. And you do have to worry about what's going to happen <clears throat> when the shoe's on the 
other foot. Uh, my hope is that this really is uh, Jim Comey again taking the law into his own hands, thinking the rules don't apply to him. But as you said, we need to know more about how much Comey, uh, how far Comey went in discussing this with people like Joe Biden or even President Obama. Is there anything obviously potentially criminal here other than perhaps Comey making misrepresentations under oath to the FISA court? Uh, because it just seems like, you know, you oh, this is just, you know, political dirty tricks or political gamesmanship. You're talking about the FBI. You're talking about senior level officials and intelligence agencies all being politicized to go on an open ended uh, fishing expedition against the incumbent president and his senior officials, starting with General Flynn. That seems to me that and I don't know offhand any potential statutes that would apply but it seems to me that's got to be a question that's being asked so that this isn't a precedent that's set. Oh, Dan, I think that's still to come. I wouldn't say there's nothing uh, to investigate or no crimes possible. Uh, that's the whole point of the John Durham investigation. Durham is, you know, is the U.S. attorney in Connecticut. He's been charged by Attorney General Barr to look at all of this. Um, you could say, yes, that there was uh, other criminal violations that might have occurred, but we have to wait and see what the facts are. At the very least, as you pointed out, there might have been lying under oath to the FISA court, but we don't know what else there could have been. There could have been, uh, who knows, there could have been uh, intelligence and surveillance that was done without warrants. Um, there could have been manufacturing evidence. There could have been illegal contacts with foreign towns. We just don't know. Um, that's really what Durham's uh, getting on with. And, of course, his investigation is still going on. So I think he's certainly finding things. Uh, and also, let me just last, lastly say, the reason there haven't been prosecutions so far is because this Justice Department actually hasn't chosen to go after its political enemies. You may recall the Inspector General actually referred some of the statements that Jim Comey made under oath to the prosecutors for potential uh, charging. There was an uh, investigation to potentially charge Andrew McCabe. Uh, the Bar Justice Department decided not to do that. So, I think there's still more to come. There's still potential criminal violations. And I think this department has actually chosen not to prosecute where it could have in the interest of uh, reinforcing the rule of law, not making it appear that they're pursuing political enemies. One crime we know that was committed was the unmasking of General Flynn. And are you surprised that uh, despite uh, years of investigation now, that person who committed that crime still hasn't been identified? I am surprised that, that that's a a line of inquiry that just hasn't uh, uh, gone as far as one would hope, or maybe that's also been taken over by Mr. Durham's investigation. But uh, the way that so many people's identities uh, were unmasked, as you as you point out, because they had might have been picked up in electronic surveillance abroad, that's supposed to, not supposed to be something that's supposed to be done lightly. It's something not something that's supposed to be done en masse. And what happened in the very end of the Obama uh, Obama's last year in office? highly unusual. And I hope that Durham is investigating that. And maybe that's why you haven't heard anything about it lately is because it's been wrapped up in his larger investigation into the how, how the whole Russia collusion story got started. He is John Yu. He's the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. John, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, sure thing, Dan. Take care. Don't you know I'm still standing better than I ever did? Looking like a true survivor. Feeling like a little kid. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Lot to talk about with Dr. John Lee, so let's get right to him. Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and NHS National Health Service consultant pathologist across the pond there in the UK. Dr. Lee, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. You had uh, an interesting piece in uh, spectator.us about um, the evolutionary nature of the virus and viruses generally. And uh, this against the backdrop of the news last week that 66% of uh, new hospital admissions in New York City were people who had uh, been infected while in close quarters, while locked down. And you suggest that um, it's perhaps the case that the lockdown is frustrating an evolutionary tendency of the virus to get weaker over time. Please explain. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a hypothesis, but it's, it's the sort of thing that we see in other viral epidemics. The, the idea is that if you, uh, any of these viruses are, they're not just one type of thing. They're millions and billions of particles which are slightly different between them. Um, and these RNA viruses, which are the sort of the coronaviruses, are, are more susceptible to being different than many other types of virus because of their, uh, the way they, they replicate themselves. So the idea is if there's differences between the viruses in terms of how nasty they are when they affect you, if you have a particularly nasty version and you take to your bed, you'll tend to automatically socially isolate yourself because that's what you do when you're ill. But if you have a mild version that doesn't make you too ill, you'll tend to carry on going out and going shopping and seeing friends and going to work and so forth. So you'll tend to spread that milder version more widely than the nastier version will be spread. And so quite quickly in the population, the idea is that the milder versions will come to predominate and we'll all have a mild version of the virus and it won't be too bad. So that's a hypothesis, but it's, it's like I say, it's pretty well borne out by what we already know about viruses. So on that basis, asymptomatic people spreading mild versions of the virus would be a good thing because it just means we build up antibodies to a mild version, whereas uh, you know, keeping us all locked down and not letting the mild version spread might actually keep the virus a bit nastier for a bit longer. That's the general idea. I wanted to also get um, your uh, take on some uh, recent development, and this also out of New York City. The um, uh, response, the immune response in some children, that this rash that they're getting and, and the idea that maybe in kids who are we've otherwise uh, noted are you know, virtually invulnerable to the virus if they don't have an underlying condition, that they're immune, that in some children, maybe their immune response is sort of overproducing a response. And that's what's making them sick. Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, that particular, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but as I understand it, that particular reaction to the virus is really pretty rare. It's just a handful of cases. Right. And I think it's true to say pretty much with any pathogen, you know, that you get, I mean, a good example, for example, would be meningitis. You know, most people, when they are exposed to meningitis, have a pretty mild reaction to it, but a few people have a really horrible reaction to it, and these are the, the students, you know, who sometimes found in their rooms very ill or even having, having died because they get an overwhelming reaction to that particular pathogen. So it can happen with a whole variety of different pathogens, um, and it's just one of the ways in which the, the body's immune response, you know, as in anything complicated in nature, isn't 100% effective. Sometimes it overdoes it, and then that can cause you to get a reaction. Um, as I understand it, that isn't a particularly common or, in fact, a pretty rare thing with this virus, but it may be happening in a few cases. It wouldn't surprise me. With respect to uh, the lockdown having damaging effects on, on uh, people uh, health-wise, the uh, fabulous Bakersfield boys, as I call them, these two emergency room doctors from California whose uh, videos have gone viral as they've been offering their opinions about uh, the virus as well as the response. One of the things they said that's been challenged that I wanted to get your professional opinion on is 
the idea that if you lock people down for an extended period of time, you're actually weakening their immune system because they're not going through the normal process of dealing with uh, contagions and having the body fight off the contagions in the normal course of daily life. And so, so you come out of lockdown in a weaker state, immunologically speaking. Is that, is that true? Well, <laughs> I, I, doubt, I doubt we've actually got any direct evidence for that, but it, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, if, if, if lockdown is having any effect on stopping this virus spreading, which is another point that we can debate potentially, but if it's really having an effect on stopping it spreading, it'll presumably also be having effects on other viruses that are out there, cold viruses and flu viruses and other things that are normally circulating around, so that when we do come out of lockdown, those things are going to have a bit of a resurgence as well. Um, I think in terms of our immune system, I mean, there are so many antigens and bits and pieces in the air and in our environment. I, I, I personally would reserve judgment on whether it's, that's a significant effect. You know, I mean, uh, our immune systems have, have been designed over millions of years to keep us healthy in the world. And the world is full of lots and lots of tiny particles which we breathe in and take in around us. So I don't know how significant an effect that would be. I think it's plausible that, it, that there'll be a resurgence in other communicable diseases when we come out of lockdown there. When we come back with Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and NHS consultant, I want to talk about the way data is being reported and used without context, how it could not only not give us the full picture, it could also actually indicate the opposite of what we know to be true. More with Dr. John Lee when we return. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Dr. John Lee, retired professor of pathology and NHS consultant. One of the other points you make in terms of arguing for ending the lockdown, Dr. Lee, is that uh, the way data is being used and reported, it's, it's like the old saying, uh, data is being used like a drunk uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. And this is what you're describing is data presented without context that not only doesn't tell you what you need to know, could indicate the opposite of what you uh, think is uh, of what we know to be true. I think that's really true. I mean, the trouble with it is, is that if you present a death number, the number of people who died, apparently died of this disease, that's a big number and it makes a very dramatic headline. But in a way, what we're having at the moment, it seems to me, is, is not just an epidemic of this virus, but we're having an epidemic of awareness, an epidemic of awareness that these things are out there, that they do kill people. When you look at the flu numbers, for example, on many years, they also make huge numbers, but because we're so used to the idea of flu, those don't get presented in the same way. The trouble with it is, if you present raw death numbers, they look very dramatic, but when you look at them in the context of the number of people who die normally, of the number of people who normally die of viral infections, of the sorts of people who are dying of these viral infections, as opposed to fit and healthy people, say, um, you know, you get a whole different picture. Let's talk about what else we understand to be true, because this relates to lockdown policies. Transmission of the virus. You have people uh, you see walking down the street. One person has a mask on, the other doesn't. The one with the mask on sees the other person with the, without the mask. Dives into a bush, lest they be immediately infected by just walking past someone. It's lunacy, but it's also real. It's real conduct among some subset of the population. Yeah. There was a study a few weeks ago we mentioned on this show out of Hong Kong, I believe, that suggests there was almost no incidence of transmission outside. 
And yet you have rules. I'll just use this as an example because it's uh, particularly um, poignant to me. Uh, in Illinois, uh, you can play golf, but uh, only two people and no carts. In Michigan, you can play golf for people, but you have to take an individual cart. In Chicago, you can't play golf at all, even within Illinois. Chicago, you can't play golf on Chicago, of course, as you can in Illinois. That's stricture. Michigan right next door has this. Does any of that have any basis in science? And what do we know about the likelihood of transmission outdoors for golf and every other outdoor activity? I think what we're seeing with these types of things is what happens when people are frightened and when we don't really have data to support one thing over another thing. There's virtually no direct evidence, really, on how this particular virus, or even really viruses in general, are transmitted. I mean, network science, you know, makes modeling assumptions about you know, how viruses spread in populations, and they set up models, and they try and see how well their models match what's happening in the population. In a mathematical modeling type of scenario, there are literally thousands and tens of thousands of different ways that you can mix up your variables and things to make the output that you want to see, and then you can claim that this or that or the other has an influence on it. But what it does seem to me is that a lot of the things that are being suggested about social distancing simply aren't the way that human beings live their lives. And I think we have to have a balance between what we think is reasonable behavior in terms of living our lives and what the risks of that behavior are in terms of catching illnesses and diseases and viruses. Now, if this virus was as awful as it was originally presented to be, and you know, it, that was actually 3.4% you know, of people who caught it were going to die. But imagine in London, say, in, in the 16th century and the plague was there. You know, one in three or one in two people who caught the plague died. If it was as bad as that, well, we might, it might be sensible to dive into a bush to avoid the person walking past you. But on the other hand, if it does now seems likely that 99.9% of people who get this virus, whether they're fit or not, will survive it, it doesn't seem to me, at least, that doesn't seem to me to be a proportionate response. I think there's very little evidence to suggest we should be doing any of the social distancing measures that are there. I think we should be aiming to get back to normal pretty quickly. And I think as we get back to normal, we will find that you know, not a lot happens, really. And maybe there'll be a few more cases. But the justification for lockdown in social distancing was never that these were going to be reduced on a five-year view anyway. The virus is out there. Pandora's box is open not going to go away. So we will be living with it. So we might as well get used to it, seems to me. I wanted to ask you one question about vaccines to the uh, news out over the weekend that uh, the World Health Organization released guidance on how an approach to variolation could be ethically justified. I mean, this is not a new idea. Uh, it was done to George Washington's troops at Valley Forge, for goodness sakes. But there's obviously a lot of questions about it. We have a different culture now than we did previously when variolation was used for other diseases like malaria and typhoid and the flu. What is your take on, describe it for the layman out there, which is me too until this, uh, the purposeful infection, low doses of the virus properly monitored by medical professionals for the purpose of generating the antibodies and, and a vaccine? Yeah, well, I mean, the classic example of this was years ago with uh, William Jenner with smallpox, wasn't it? And smallpox was a horrible disease that killed untold thousands of people and they discovered that the milking maids who caught a variola which was a virus related to smallpox but much less mild called cowpox um, they caught that um, when they were milking the cows and they never got smallpox so then it was realized that the antibodies that you made to uh, the cowpox um, uh, virus would also protect you from smallpox so then the idea was that they took uh, bits of the pus from um, uh, from uh, uh, cowpox people, and, and they put it on to, into other people, and that protected them from the smallpox. 
So the idea is if you if you can find a virus that's closely related to the virus that you're worried about, um, but not as nasty, that you can deliberately infect people with that to protect them from the nasty one. So obviously that begs the question of how nasty this virus is in the first place. As I say, the evidence is that it's much less nasty than was originally thought. And it does seem to me that a lot of the narrative about this virus is sort of lagging behind the reality of what's happening on the ground. So people's initial fears and the pictures that came out of, of New York, you know, and Wuhan and Italy, they, they framed people's initial fears and made people worried that this virus was a really awful virus. I'm not saying it isn't a nasty virus, it clearly is, but it's not as bad as we originally thought. So whether it's necessary to, to try and do that, or whether in fact actually just getting back to more normal life and letting it spread through the population as it's going to spread is the right approach, seems to me that's a moot point at the moment. And also whether or not we actually have versions of this virus that are milder. But for the sake of argument, if the hypothesis we were talking about earlier about the mutation of this virus is true, then many people who've got the virus but asymptomatically may well have a very mild version of it. That might be a basis, if you could somehow isolate it, um, for infecting other people with. But um, one of the things about variolation was, yeah, I mean, so basically it's a question of whether you can actually find the source of virus that's a milder version of the virus. And whether by the time that becomes available, um, it'll even be worthwhile doing it, because it may well be that a lot of us already had it by then. He is Dr. John Lee, a retired professor of pathology and National Health Service consultant pathologist across the pond in the UK. Dr. Lee, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks very much. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And just to use as an example to point out the silliness of the lockdowners' rules and regulations, the edicts from governors like Whitmer and Pritzker, who suggest everything they do is predicated on science, right? So I live in Illinois. In Chicago, under Mayor Lori Lightfoot, golf courses are closed. Can't play golf course, uh, golf. You can't social distance outside on a 7,500-yard golf course. Right. Okay. Uh, In the state of Illinois, the governor's edict is that you can play golf courses that are open outside of Chicago, which are closed, but you can only play in twosomes and you can't play with a cart because a cart has surface as if a pull cart pull cart doesn't have surface area, whatever. The whole predicate of this is, oh, by the way, there's almost no evidence of outdoor transmission. Uh, uh, you know, minus sustained somebody infected, like breathing, spitting up on you, which uh, doesn't normally happen in a twosome or a foursome. Uh, in Michigan, where I played this weekend because, you know, it's a stone's throw an hour and a half up to Benton Harbor, Michigan. You can play. And this is Whitmerland, not exactly uh, uh, open, small L liberal society. Right. In terms of response to the pandemic, you can play foursomes. Each person takes their own golf cart. You can do that. So Whitmer is foursomes in Michigan, but Pritzker in Illinois is twosomes. And in Chicago, within Illinois, it's zerosomes. And this is all predicated on science. These are the best practices based on talking to epidemiologists and public health professionals. Nonsense. And uh, just on a lighter note and a recommendation, in addition to nosafespaces.com, don't forget to use the code uh, SAFE25 and you get 25% off. Dennis Prager's documentary, nosafespaces.com. 
No Safe Spaces, where you watch at nosafespaces.com. And you can watch as many times as you want between now and the end of May 31, the end of May, which is May 31. Nosafespaces.com. You should watch that. Also, another recommendation, if I could be so bold, Jerry Seinfeld, new stand-up special out called uh, 23 Hours to Kill. And I, I actually, I think it's some of his best work. Uh, and he does this great riff on golf, Carlin-esque in terms of a riff on sports. Here's what golf really is, at least for the married guys out there. Avoidance is the male domestic instinct. Golf, the ultimate avoidance activity, a game so nonsensically difficult, so pointless, so irrational, so time-consuming. The word golf could only possibly stand for get out, leave family. (laughs) And I have a lot of friends that play. They love it. Oh, they love it. Jerry, you would love it. It's a very challenging game. Yes, I am sure that it is. It's also challenging trying to throw a tic-tac 100 yards into a shoebox. In the fantasy mind of the golfing father, when he comes home, the family will come running out to hear the exciting stories of his golfing adventures. In reality, no one is even aware that he has left or returned. From eight and a half hours of idiotic hacking through sand and weeds while driving drunk in a clown car through a fake park. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. When they're uh, not running interference for the left, yapping terriers in the D.C. press corps like Chuck Todd are uh, making stuff up. Listen to this uh, foray on Meet the Press over the weekend, uh, referencing something Barr said, Attorney General Barr said, in his conversation with Catherine Herridge that we played last week about the decision to drop charges against General Flynn. Uh, you brought up Bill Barr. Peggy Noonan, I want you to listen to this Bill Barr answer to a question about what will history say about this. Where do you hear this answer? Take a listen. When history looks back on this decision, how do you think it will be written? Well, history is written by the winner, so it largely depends on, on <laughs> uh, who's writing the history. I was struck, Peggy, by the cynicism of the answer. It's a correct answer, but he's the attorney general. He didn't make the case that he was upholding the rule of law. He was almost admitting that, yeah, this is a, this is a political job. Actually, he did. When history looks back on this decision, how do you think it will be written? Well, history is written by the winner, so it largely depends on, on <laughs> uh, who's writing the history. But I think a fair history would say it was a, it was a good decision because it... It upheld the rule of law. It helped. It, it upheld the standards of the Department of Justice, and it undid what was an injustice. So, in point of fact, Attorney General Barr provided the very answer that Chuck Todd said he didn't provide because Chuck Todd is a political hack masquerading as a moderator, as so many of these political hacks masquerading as moderators are. They're operatives 
They're not journalists. They're not moderators. They're not particularly bright. They don't have particularly good discussions. It is for a singular purpose to drive a market position, to advance a narrative at all costs, even something so obviously wrong. And then you get the we regret the error in response after they're caught red handed. Is it malicious or is it sloppy? Is it malicious or incompetence? It doesn't really matter, does it? Either way, you're not doing your job. Either way, you're nothing along the lines of what you represent, some fourth estate guarantor of a small-D democratic republic. For more on this, a gentleman who has had uh, some experience with the D.C. press corps, too. I'm sure he has enjoyed it as much as Attorney General Barr has. He is former acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker, chief of staff to the Attorney General of the United States as well, also former U.S. attorney. And he's the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Above the Law, the inside story of how the Justice Department tried to subvert President Trump. Yeah, I think we're getting a real feel for it. Matthew Whitaker, you thanks think? for joining us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, mean, you I know, think you're on to something. The, the book is, you know, obviously I've been working on it since uh, I left the DOJ and over a year ago now. But it is really, I think, shocking to a lot of people. Everyone I talk to always says, when is somebody going to be held accountable? Mm-hmm. And I think that time is soon to come. Uh, this Flynn move by the attorney general is the next step. You know, I watched that Chuck Todd meet the press over the weekend, and I was just, I, I knew, I mean, you know, your eyes are like, that's not what he said. You know, I mean, the attorney general was explaining how this was upholding the rule of law. And, you know, again, the, the left and the media that is complicit with them always helps support their message and kind of tries to tell the American people what is actually not true. And they try to convince us that it is true. It's, it's disgusting, and but it's, you know, par for the course. Well, here, here's the thing about Chuck Todd, because President Obama said he was up, concerned about the rule of law being upheld in that uh, telephone call that was leaked. Yeah, He's concerned about up, the rule of the law being upheld. So President Obama must be standing for the rule of law. So that necessarily means Attorney General Barr can't. And that's the level of analysis that's done inside the Beltway. It is. Remember, I mean, the left is so good about synchronizing messages. And as soon as Obama speaks and like you said, they leaked, you know, his talking points, why he's having a conference call talking about that subject. God only knows. But guess what? Everybody's singing from the same hymnal on the left. Then. What, when you uh, look back at your time as acting AG, what experiences stand out with and, and in, maybe in particular with respect to this whole Russian collusion matter, how how central was that to uh, your attention during your time? Well, obviously, I was dropped into a firestorm. I had been, because General, Attorney General Sessions was recused as his chief of staff, I was also recused up until I became acting attorney general. And suddenly I was in charge of the investigation and under a tense scrutiny, not only about things I had previously said, thankfully not on your show, but on <laughs> CNN and, and elsewhere. And again, fought through all of that. And I knew as soon as I was engaged with the Mueller investigation that there was no evidence of this connection between the Russian government and the Trump campaign. And my heart sank, quite frankly, because it had been, you know, torn our country apart. It had been a very, you know, it had been used as a cudgel to bash the president over the head for two years. And uh, they turned up no evidence. And they knew it in 2016. Now that we've seen the transcripts from these interviews of all the uh, people that were there. Why wasn't Rod, Rod Rosenstein's wings clipped? 
or uh, so that you could clip Mueller's wings by extension. I mean, uh, this whole saga, perhaps at the end of the day, it's better that it just played out like it did because it so impugns the integrity of so many that were participants in this, mm-hmm. as we're finding out with the, what actually was said under oath by senior administration officials of the Obama administration as compared to their Manchurian candidate conspiracy theories on cable TV. But 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 it, it there could have been an end run if Rosenstein didn't essentially accede to an open ended fishing expedition. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the thing was, is that who who was the supervisor of the deputy attorney general who, for the purposes of the Mueller investigation, was the acting attorney general, and that is the president. I mean, there, there was nobody in between. And so with Sessions on the sideline, you ended up with sort of this, what I would call a power vacuum. And until I got there as the acting attorney general, it, there was, it was just, the, 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 it was broken. It was kind of this floating out into, you know, this kind of a run, almost a runaway investigation. Well, and that well, was one of the many things when you got that the, I criticized before I got there. Yeah, when you got there, what is it that you wanted to do that you couldn't do? When I became acting attorney general, unfortunately, we had 35-day government shutdown where you know we were asking members of law enforcement, including the FBI and DEA and ATF and others, to do their job without pay, to risk their lives without being paid. And so that was really a difficult time, and, and there were many things that I wanted to accomplish as acting attorney general. But, you know, I, I think it was an honor of a lifetime and we got, a, we got, we did get a lot of things accomplished. There was so much um, that I wanted to get done in changing the policies. And again, this is, um, you know, especially when I was chief of staff, there were so many things I wanted to get done, changing policies and making them uh, and improving certain ways that we did business at the Department of Justice that was just impossible because of institutional resistance and just, you know, being worn down by process. But but specifically with respect to the Mueller investigation, is there anything that you wish you could have done that it was just politically impossible to do? I was and I said this at a press conference in January when I was acting attorney general. You know, I mean, I I really believed and, and I knew that the Mueller investigation was for all intents and purposes over. I was just waiting for a report that ultimately was delivered in March much different than the report that I was led to believe was coming uh, in much, you know, 400 plus pages and contained two parts, including the uh, non-exoneration part of part two. And so, I mean, I think if anything, you know, my experience uh, was that I, that I knew it was over and that instead of, you know, doing something dramatic and politically expedient, that the key was letting the investigation run its course knowing that there was no evidence of collusion with the Russians. With respect to the FBI, the uh, FBI, is it reformable? And if so, is Christopher Ray the guy to do so? Yeah, so I, I think we need to look at what's already happened. Um, and what's already happened is, is the, the bad apples, the people that sort of really messed up or took advantage or did things that were inconsistent with policies, procedures, and quite frankly, the law, they're all gone. Uh, and Chris Ray has been doing uh, his, you know, it, his way and the way he, you know, not flashy, not talking publicly about what he's doing. Um, but ultimately, the, whether or not Chris Ray is the right person, I mean, that's a choice that that General Barr has been specifically tasked with reviewing by the president, it sounds like. And, and uh, you know, I've known Chris since 2004. And in my experience with him is he is, you know, a quiet solid leader. But at the same time, uh, I think a lot of people want a lot more um, for the in, in the reforms 
at the FBI. All right. Matthew Whitaker, former <laughs> acting attorney general of the United States, former chief of staff to the attorney general of the United States, Jeff Sessions, author of the book that will be released next week, Above the Law, the inside story of how the Justice Department tried to subvert President Trump. Matt, thanks for joining us and good luck with the book. Appreciate it. Yeah, let's do this again. Talk to you soon. Take care. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. It's uh, interesting to see the evolution of opinion in the direction of those who want a sensible phased in reopening. Uh, no less than Connor Friedersdorf over at The Atlantic writing over the weekend, take the shutdown skeptics seriously. Denunciations of the sort that cast the lockdown debate as a straightforward battle between a pro-human and a pro-economy camp. The actual trade-offs are not straightforward. Are ongoing onerous shutdowns warranted beyond what is necessary to avoid overwhelming ambulances, hospitals, and morgues? The answer depends in part on an unknown, how close the country is to containing the virus. Mm-hmm. That's fair, a recognition of what we don't know. And he uh, presents uh, sort of the question. If we knew that a broadly effective COVID-19 treatment was imminent or that a working vaccine was months away, minimizing infections through social distancing until that moment would be the right course. At the other extreme, if we will never have an effective treatment or vaccine and most everyone will get infected eventually, then the costs of social distancing are untenable. We don't know where we sit on that spectrum. So we cannot know what the best way forward is, even if we place the highest possible value on preserving life and protecting the vulnerable. And also that assumes uh, something I don't, which is that the lockdown, the social distancing is the best way to preserve human life. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that's not the case, as we discussed with Dr. Lee earlier in the program. And so the balancing and this goes back to the conversation we had with the former sociology professor at University of Kent on Friday, Frank Ferruti. How do you organize your life? How do you live your life as opposed to just exist? If you want to just exist, then you plan for the worst case scenario for everything and do nothing. If you want to live, then you plan for the most likely scenario, don't you? You get in your car and you drive someplace because the most likely scenario is if that you pay attention and are responsible that you'll be safe. The worst case scenario is that you get uh, in a crash and you die. Well, what do you plan for in your day to day life in terms of using a vehicle? The most likely scenario or the worst case scenario? That's sort of what Mike DeWine was getting at when he appeared on Fox News Sunday yesterday with Chris Wallace and had this to say about uh, Ohio, which is uh, almost going to be completely open by the end of this week. And look, Mike DeWine it was no laissez faire guy when it came to lockdowns. Remember, this is a guy who postponed his state's primary election on March 17th when a real lockdown artist, a real lockdown and bust politician, J.B. Pritzker, uh, had the uh, primary election in Illinois go forward. So in terms of Mark, uh, in terms of uh, Mike Devine's bona fides when it comes to willingness to shut down. But he also recognizes something else we'll get to a willingness to respect and seek the consent of the governed. Well, it's really um, a risk no matter what we do. It's a risk if we don't do anything. It's a risk if we, if we do this. 
Um, what we have done is come up with the best practices uh, for businesses to reopen. We put business people together with health people, had them come up with these best practices. And Chris, the, you know, the economy is not going to open uh, no matter what we do, whatever we order, unless people have confidence. And we're trying to give them confidence. But at the same time, we're telling them, look, the virus is still out there. It's still very, very dangerous. Uh, we have to keep the distancing. Uh, people should wear, wear a mask, uh, wash your hands. I mean, these are basic things that we have to do. We can't let up. Mm-hmm. And uh, DeWine, uh, responding to the criticism or the pushback from Wallace that, well, wait a second, you're uh, doing this uh, expansive reopening, but uh, Ohio is is not operating within the reopening guidelines of the federal government. Since a week ago, Friday, the number of new cases in Ohio has gone down and then back up. And two days ago, last Friday, you had the highest number of new cases since April 20th. So I guess the question, Governor, is, I mean, that would seem to be a red flag right there. You're not meeting the White House gating guideline of a steady downward trajectory in cases for two weeks. Why is that not a red light? Well, I don't know if anybody's meeting it or not very many states are meeting it. Uh, what we do now have, Chris, is is great capacity in regard to testing. We did not have that two weeks ago. Uh, we are standing up a, a big force uh, of people uh, to, to do, uh, to go talk to people, uh, try to run that virus down, isolate people. Um, so those are two things we did not have before. That It's a work in progress. Here's the bottom line. They're guidelines, Chris. And things, as I've said on this show before, don't go up at a neat 45-degree angle and down at a neat 45-degree angle. It's more complicated. Look at the viral spread. Look at the cases being reported. Um, and in part, uh, compare that in the context of the testing, more testing, you get more cases reported. You're starting to capture more people who may have been asymptomatic. The bottom line is this. What he's saying is I'm looking uh, more globally at my state and seeing what we've done over the last month, uh, the new infrastructure we built and the capacity we have for whatever may come. And I'm saying this is sensible. They're just that federal guidelines. They didn't contemplate, cannot contemplate every possible exigency. So you have to make adult decisions knowing that there are trade-offs and knowing that no decision comes without risk. But one thing uh, that um, uh, is quite risky, it turns out, and uh, Tyler Cohen has it right when he talks about uh, locking down some parts of America too early, asking the question. No consideration for political sustainability of policy choices, consent of the governed. Mike DeWine in Ohio walked back his mask requirement. It wasn't going to be tenable. You need the people to come along with you because, in point of fact, often the people are ahead of you. This is what uh, Nate Silver found. uh, Very interesting piece at uh, 538.com. Looking at uh, data called by uh, this uh, private data company called Cubic. Six states, Tennessee, Georgia, Louisiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, Kentucky. All states that President Trump won in 2016. 23% of the people were staying staying home on average during the first week of March. That proportion jumped to 47% a month later across these six states. If defying social distancing orders is really a political statement, you'd think the Southeast would be a hotbed for dissent. And you'd be wrong. Uh, People, some maybe whipped into a bit of a frenzy, into a panic by the press corps. 
but also erring on the side of caution, at least initially, till we knew more people acting sensibly. Again, at some point, you're going to have to trust people, whether you want to or not, lock down and bust politicians. At some point, you're going to have to recognize that people will act in furtherance of their safety concerns as well as their economic concerns and try to strike the balance that makes sense for them. As opposed to one politician trying to strike the balance that makes sense for all, say, 13 million people in Illinois or 12 million people in Ohio. It's going to be implemented and functional or not at the local level, at the employer to employee, uh, business owner to customer level. That's how it's actually going to work. And when you don't take in political sustainability because you believe as a member of the expert class or the technocracy, you can just impose your will without consequence. You find out there are consequences and you're going to get pushback and you can uh, make fun of people all you want. You could try to marginalize them all you want through your friends in the media, but it won't win the day. Not in most states. In a few states, it might. The deeper blue states, the states that have had uh, a majority of their population politically lobotomized, like Illinois, New York, California. But not most states. Most states where they're common sense realists, both on the front end of this and as we sit here and discuss it today. This is Dan Proud. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. The uh, next guest on the program has uh, is the president of an organization that has one of my favorite slogans, which is connecting good intentions to sound economics. What a concept, if only that were the mantra of more of our public policymakers. He is Father Robert Sirico. He is the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. Father Sirico, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Delighted to be with you. Thanks for having me. Uh, last week, CBS News reported that uh, more than 12,000 Catholic churches in the United States had applied for the payroll protection loan forgiveness program the federal government set up in this uh, era of COVID-19, and some 9,000 parishes received PPP funding. That may be uh, good economics, but is that good theology? Well, I I don't think it's good theology or good economics. (laughs) Let Let me explain why. I can understand that there are very particular local circumstances that would press upon people uh, to do it. It's desirable. I have a parish. I run a parish with a school. I run the Acton Institute, which was also eligible for this funding. But my fear is that he who drinks the king's wine <laughs> sings the king's song. Mm. And even though they say, you know, you make this loan and it's really a grant that down the line uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do for you, I'm just a little afraid of the entanglement of government with religion. The other thing I'm concerned with is the mentality on the part of religious organizations to think that we can resort to the government uh, as our support. We are supposed to be planning and developing and uh, organizing ourselves uh, for private charitable endeavors at the most local level. And for us to go outside that, I think, is at the very least uh, dubious and perhaps imprudent. I wouldn't say this is heresy. Uh, 
but I think um, it it needs to be thought through very thoroughly. Well, and and just a building on that too. Um, you know, it's ironic, right? Because all of the separation of church and state folks are always worried about somehow the church is going to overtake the state. When right. in point of fact, the real concern and the real thing that uh, houses of worship and clergy guard against is the state interfering with the, the operation of the church, the church or the house of worship. Exactly. And exactly. so, they and, and regulate our our soup kitchens. They regulate right. our schools. They regulate our hospitals and our orphanages. And this is another way of uh, intruding. Well, and he, here's my concern, too, in addition to what you said, which is uh, the uh, notion that, look, if you protect the downside, then you have a claim to regulate the upside. So yeah. you're, if, for, whether it's a forgive, whether the loan is forgiven or not, you, you've, you've given uh, uh, yourself a path to, to uh, interference, meaning the state, and to places of worship. Right. And, you know, in our school, I came here eight years ago in this parish, and in our school we had a hot lunch program. And we closed out the hot lunch program because I was afraid of what federal mandates were going to be placed upon our school in exchange for providing that food. By the way, <laughs> the following year we realized that we saved $40,000. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, just that since we're on the topic, um, I uh, uh, went to a talk you gave in Chicago a couple years back, and I thought you had a, a great argument that you've memorialized in writing, too, but people need to hear this, about how confiscatory taxation, speaking of the state interference, is actually a taking as it pertains to people of faith who want to send their children to a school uh, of their faith. Right. I mean, just look at it, obviously, uh people who have their children in parochial schools, whether they're Catholic schools or Protestant schools or yeshivas, uh, are in effect paying twice for the education of their children, first in the form of taxation and then in the tuition that they have to pay to the school in order for the school to survive. Wouldn't it be much better to allow parents to have discretionary use of that money in the education of their kids and even their employers? Let their employers say, look, as a part of the employment package, we'll, we will give you X amount of dollars for your kids to go to school. I mean, it's far more innovative uh, than thinking of the state as the first resource that we turn to in everything. And this, this whole debacle with the, uh, uh, the stimulus money is another example of that. We flooded uh, these organizations, these state organizations with money, uh, rather than why not just give a tax holiday, let let people not pay taxes for a year, and then they have all those resources available to them. And for those who are very poor and don't t- pay taxes, then we provide something in a kind of a, a tax uh, rebate or uh, tax um, uh, funding, you know, support. When, uh, when we come back, I want to get your uh, observations about what you're seeing with respect to the the shutdown and the social distancing guidelines and the regulation of uh, uh, churches and houses of worship having services during this pandemic. More with Father Robert Sirico, president and co-founder of the Acton Institute, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Father Robert Sirico. He's the president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. And uh, before we get on to some of the um, fights between churches and governments uh, around the country over the ability to have service, the ability to operate their uh, parish or their church, uh, I wanted to also um, give you the opportunity to discuss the moral case for the free market. I mean, again, the Acton Institute connecting good intentions to sound economics. And uh, you wrote a book a few years back that was an excellent treatise on the free market, the moral case for the free market in a way that few, particularly uh, of the cloth, are willing to defend it these days. And so I, I wanted you to, to explicate your view that the capitalism is the most moral economic system. Basically, every facet of our life in this world is touched by economics. And what economics is, is basically the allocation of scarce resources. We all live in the context of scarcity. The moral dimension of it is to consider the fact that the person who produces wealth ought to be considered the owner of that wealth and not first and foremost the state. This is important not only because of this moral connection between a human being and their property, but also because they know best what to do. So the government doesn't really know. It's removed from people's lives. It can guess. It can create cookie-cutter solutions to problems. So it's a dissipation of knowledge so that, in effect, society becomes dumber the further away from the local situation the decisions are being made. So that's just one element of the moral case for a free economy. The commandment against theft undergirds the importance of private property and everything that surrounds, all the other institutions that surround private property. I, I should add a caveat. I'm not a fan of the word capitalism, both because it has Marxist orientation mm. or, or origin, but secondly, because it's too narrowly focused on one dimension of economics, capital formation. Now, that's very important, but there's so much else that's involved in human action on an economic level, the moral decision-making, the sense of responsibility, the knowledge that I mentioned for what is needed and what isn't needed. All of this goes into play, and I elaborate that, of course, extensively in my book. Uh, human action, uh, of von Mises' invocation there. Um, and, yeah. and, and, I, and I like that, too, because one of the things I try to, and I shouldn't have said capitalism, I should have said free market, because that's actually the, the title of your book, The Case for the Free Market. Right. But um, the orientation of business as a social service provider, or a, a service provider at minimum. But that's what a business is. A business is a service provider. If you don't provide a service that people value, then you don't stay in business. Exactly. And this is another thing that people have as a misconception about the market, that it's all about selfishness and not at all about service. It's Of course it's about service because you can't accumulate profit if you're not serving people, not in a free economy. You can do this in a political economy. You can do it with crony capitalism or favoritism. But in a free economy, you have to exchange something that other people see as valuable to them in their lives. When uh, you uh, read the stories that we're all reading about uh, churches running uh, up against the state with these shutdown orders, and you can only have 10 people in your in your church at any given time, um, Department of Justice has weighed in in a couple of cases in Mississippi and Virginia on behalf of the church. Attorney General Barr has said he's watching very closely. Justice is watching very closely the treatment of people's First Amendment rights. 
how how are you watching this and receiving this? How how concerned are you about infringements on religious liberty not going away after COVID nineteen does? Well, I, I think first and foremost, it's the categorization of religion, or I should say, the marginalization of religion as a non-essential service, mm. and this flies in the face of our entire history as an American republic. Secondly, let me say, who knows best what is needed and what distancing is needed? You know, I want to stipulate that I think we obviously have a real health crisis, and we need to minimize the contagion by separating ourselves appropriately, cleaning, and all, all the rest of that. That's not what is in dispute. And, and there are a few religious groups that went crazy, especially right at the beginning. Some of their pastors have died from the contagion. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm not talking about completely disregarding common sense. But the notion that you have an arbitrary, and this, this epitomizes the government mentality, we're going to put 10 people. Well, you're going to put 10, allow me to have 10 people in my church, and I'm the pastor of a little Baptist church that holds 50 people. And then you're going to tell me, as the pastor of a Catholic church that holds 750 people, that I can have 10 people in mm -hmm. my church. Mm -hmm. And then let me ask you this. Is it 10 people, all of whom are in the same family, who live together? Only those 10 people? Or can I have 10 families, all of whom live together, which then will exceed the number? You see the kind of absurdity, the, this kind of cookie-cutter approach to the thing, rather than saying educating pastors who need to be educated about the contagion, the, the various protocols needed to minimize uh, the uh, contact, and then let people make decisions on local levels based on their. I would say elderly people, people who are in vulnerable situations, of course they shouldn't be. But when you have young people, when you have children, this is not the issue that we're dealing with right now. We're dealing with an older and vulnerable population uh, who are at risk for um, dying from this disease. And uh, just again, to the accentuate the concern, Knox County, Tennessee is a state that's relatively uh, moving relatively quickly to reopen and uh, is relatively more respectful of religious liberty than some other states. But yet Knox County, Tennessee, no uh, hymnals, no Bibles, uh, because, you know, that's, they have surface area that could carry the virus. Again, to your point, who's better positioned to make sure things are sanitized and so forth? Uh, you, can you, ha you can't have a Bible, but can you have a bulletin? What, what, you know, what is it you can and can't have? And you're going to have that even governed at the local level by county government seems crazy to me. And it sets the precedent. You see, it sends a message that somehow religion is marginal. The the. Um, access to clergy in hospitals is another example of it. You have food service and you have people who go in and clean those rooms, but you can't have a clergyman stand by the dead bedside of a dying person and send them off into eternity. Mm -hmm. uh, these kinds of prejudices, these it, it really does represent a, a, a secularist, scientific mentality. It just views the person as a patient and not as a person. Prejudices, that's that's the word. Uh, he is Father Robert Sirico, president and co-founder of the Acton Institute. Father Sirico, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it's it. Great to be with you, Dan. Take thanks. care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And um, something else President Obama said on that leaked, quote-unquote, phone call, the one with uh, the time codes that presented so Michael Isikoff didn't have uh, to do any you know, journalism stuff. President Obama's review of the Trump administration response to the pandemic. Again, another misdirection play, just as his focus on Flynn's, uh, the dropping of the charges against Flynn is a misdirection play. But uh, President Obama assessing President Trump and the pandemic response. It has been an absolute chaotic disaster when that mindset of what's in it for me and to heck with everybody else, when that mindset is operationalized uh, in our government. They, what's in it for me mindset? What, what's in it for me and the heck with everybody else? What, what do you say? $9 trillion later? <laughs> All the infrastructure that's been built, frankly, that wasn't existing uh, during the handover from that administration to this administration. Uh, Larry Kudlow was asked to respond to that as well. He was as confused by President Obama's review as I was. With all due respect to the former president, and I, I really don't want to get into a political back and forth here. I, I just I don't know what he's talking about. I mean, with all the assistance we've done, with all the infrastructure that we, the uh, Trump administration, working with governors and mayors uh, and with Congress, uh, with respect to testing, with respect to uh, all manner of you know PPE medical equipment, uh, with respect to ventilators, uh, you know this President Trump. One thing shouldn't be lost here. He has, uh, and it's unusual in these emergency situations, he's made great use of the private sector. Talking about that earlier in terms of reopening in a safe manner. You know, we have relied very heavily on the smartest people in this country who own retail operations, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies. You've got automobile companies producing ventilators at a rapid rate. We've ramped up the testing. Uh, we have the world's uh, largest testing percentages by far. So I, I just I don't understand what President Obama is saying. It, it just sounds so darn political to me. It does sound so darn political, doesn't it? And maybe he's offended at the use of the uh, private sector, Larry. Uh, well... Um, as you uh, take all of that in, I've got a recommendation for you and something else you can watch. Uh, Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, a documentary which presents convincing evidence that the biblical account of the Exodus is true. No, not the, uh, the D.C. Press Corps Bible in which President Obama is the Messiah. We're talking here about the work of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who journeyed to Egypt, Israel, throughout the world to search for answers to the very important question. Did the stories like Exodus as written in the Bible really happen? Right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus at Home, along with the other movies in the series, which include The Moses Controversy and The Red Sea Miracle, in addition to Exodus. Watch them at PatternsofEvidence.com. The uh, program includes a panel discussion moderated by Gretchen Carlson and featuring Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, and Anne Graham Lotz. Again, watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and other films in the series. Go to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's PatternsofEvidence.com. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. 
Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Prof and at Dan Prof Show. The unintended consequences of the COVID-19 response the world over. We talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago, talking about Lives for Lives. Uh, David Beasley, who heads the uh, World Food Program under the U.N., uh, talking about 30 million people who could starve in the next 60 days because he's got problems not only with resources, but he's got problems with countries that are locked down. He's got problems with his supply web. And he has that many people who rely on foodstuffs from the World Food Program on a, a daily and monthly basis. 30 million starve to death around the world. Another unintended consequence of the response, talking about lives for lives for all these individuals who blithely think they're great global citizens without considering all of the ripple effects of draconian measures that don't consider people that uh, don't have the luxuries that so many of us have in this country to, say, work digitally and don't have to worry about uh, food being available through drive throughs and grocery stores and so forth. Uh, what about um, victims of human trafficking? Uh, some experts have weighed in on this as well. Uh, one U.N. Uh, expert saying with COVID-19 restricting movement, diverting law enforcement resources and reducing social and public services, human, tra- human trafficking victims have even less of a chance of escaping and finding health help. School closures have not only blocked access to education, but also a source of shelter and food for millions of children. 370 million students worldwide now missing out on school meals, often their only reliable source of nutrition. Hmm. Somebody else who has uh, weighed in on the topic of uh, human trafficking and, uh, per- and, and, and in part how it's being exacerbated during this time with uh, the resource allocation as it is, is Andy Berger. She, uh, she is the co-founder of Beulah's Place in Redmond, Oregon. She's the author of A Fragile Thread of Hope, One Survivor's Quest to Rescue. She's the co-founder of Voices Against Trafficking. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. So, um, you know, that you're an expert in this space and, and we are not. So give us uh, more context on the sort of the scale of this problem and uh, perhaps how that uh, is being exacerbated uh, under current conditions globally. Sure. Well, in terms of of numbers, Dan, I mean, globally, the human trafficking problem is over $160 billion in terms of the enterprise, the business end of it. In the the scheme of things, $99 billion comes from sex trafficking. And so in the U.S., we probably account for about $34 billion of that. So it's a huge, huge crisis and a human rights crisis, uh, definitely. Uh, COVID just exacerbates the situation because, as you mentioned, where do these victims go? They're not going to be able to walk into urgent care and get help. They have no choice. They're trapped or they're enslaved. They don't have medical plans. And, you know, the panic has had all those ripple effects and with our kids, like the kids we rescue, we don't know who's carrying the virus or who will be affected by the virus because they're not living in sanitary conditions to begin with, even when we can rescue them. 
Uh, I understand from uh, reading a piece that you wrote uh, for the stream.org that you are a survivor of enslavement yourself. What, what uh, about your story are you comfortable sharing? Yes, that's, that's true. Before human trafficking was ever a term, we were barely talking about child abuse in the 60s and early 70s. I, uh, I was trafficked by all immediate family and extended family members from ages 6 months to 17 years old. And so by the time I was five, things were so bad, and my birth mother was my primary sexual predator. Uh, I, that was my first attempt at suicide. And so you escape this life. You uh, found these organizations and dedicate your life to helping other people similarly situated. Um, so what, what are things I mean? And, and again, people think about this in, in third world countries. Uh, the idea of being enslaved in the United States sounds right. foreign. Right. Um, what are things that can be done in the here in the United States and in big, I assume, uh, not limited to, but perhaps uh, substantially in big cities, big urban environments? that uh, could um, could could interdict these traffickers in addition to what law enforcement does? Well, as with any other criminal activity, if we see something, we need to say something as a community. And if people aren't comfortable or they don't know what to do, I always recommend them going to their local law enforcement agency and finding out what are the parameters on reporting. You know, a lot of times your gut instinct is usually correct. If you see something that looks unusual, maybe it's a young girl uh, who's 10 or 12, but she's made up to be like an 18-year-old with an older gentleman, and maybe they don't look like they belong together. You know, things like that. Uh, we don't want to accuse everyone. But the other part of it is, too, once we do find these predators, they need to be uh, confined, locked up, lose all of their rights and privileges for life because they have stolen the innocence, stolen the life of children, and in many cases allowed victims to die. Absolutely. So, what, what, happened, what happened to those who preyed on you? They uh, did not go to jail. I didn't become a statistic actually till I was in my early thirties in a bad marriage. And, and again, in the early sixties, I was born in early sixties. So, uh, they didn't even talk about child abuse very much. So my birth mother was a teacher and she continued on teaching. And my birth father was a salesman. Everything looked good on the outside. We had the house, we had the yard, we went to school, we were dressed well, you know, and, uh, that's, it was just a sham. But, uh, to your question, I did eventually end up reporting my birth mother when I was in counseling. But again, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of effort to go through that healing. And most people want the healing, but they may not have the stamina to go through the process. We have a lot of work to do with them with the emotion and the, the how, how do you recreate self-worth and value in that person. Uh, so it takes a, a long time. Uh, what, uh, to talk to us about um, other uh, social service providers like Beulah's Place, you know, private nonprofit organizations around the country sure. that do the work that, uh, that you do at Beulah's Place as part of the network of support that people can access. They, they, well, for us, they can definitely go to BeulahsPlace.org and find out hotline numbers, information uh, that they need. There are a lot of us out there. We're small. We, we don't get the press necessarily, but, but we are doing the work. We have been an all-volunteer organization for 11 years with a 92% success rate of these kids staying independent, finishing high school, and having jobs and giving back You know, once they graduate our program. And so uh, we're now working on a pilot community center direct uh, 
dedicated to at-risk homeless teens in our area that several other communities across the country would like to have. So part of what I do is, is go speak and create greater awareness, uh, work with congressional members on both sides of the fence to get a more collective voice against trafficking because we have got to put a dent in this uh, before all of our future is gone and all of our future belongs in our youth. How many kids have uh, gone through your program over the 11 years? We've had, we've um, housed 40 in the last few years and uh, that were 18 to 21 and reduced suicide rates in that group. And we have helped without the housing uh, because we don't have that licensing. Uh, we've helped probably 230 minors between 14 and 19 years old, and 14 and 18. The Beulah's place, where does the name come from? Beulah uh, was my husband's mother's name who passed before uh, we met about 20 years ago. And so it was one way to honor her for all that she did uh, for kids and people. But also, um, in old biblical times, there's a place called Beulah Land, which is between heaven and earth. And mm-hmm. our kids are between childhood and adulthood. Mm-hmm. So it seemed to fit. And then a rabbi friend said, well, it's also a pure Hebrew word. It means to bring together, to join. And that's what we're trying to do is bring them back to community and give them that future and a hope that they deserve. She is Andy Berger. She is the co-founder of Beulah's Place in Redmond, Oregon, author of A Fragile Thread of Hope, One Survivor's Quest to Rescue. She's also co-founder of Voices Against Trafficking. Andy, thanks so much for joining us and continued success with your work. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, big city mayors like uh, Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, a.k.a. the Triple Threat, the Sandinistan mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio. Uh, arguing that uh, the recovery runs through government. Some governors are as well, but perhaps de Blasio has been the most pronounced in the last week. You have to fund government in order to generate an economic recovery from the shutdowns. No open-ended funding of government, no making up for the lost revenues during the shutdowns of uh, local and state government, no recovery. Is that right? Well, uh, Google CEO Eric Schmidt was on Face the Nation over the weekend, and uh, you know he's a champagne socialist himself, not really any friend of the entrepreneur policy-wise. Uh, he had this to say, which should be chilling to some of those big city mayors. If you think of it as an employer, you have a bunch of employees, some of whom are dying to get back to the office, and some people who are afraid that if they go to the office, they will die. They're very concerned about their immunocompromised or what have you. So they're going to have to come up with flexible arrangements. So imagine that there are three or four people. One will go to the office, one will stay home, some will, some will go to some local or near their, near their town working environment. It will change the pattern. 
We've had this situation where people move to super cities in these incredibly concentrated ways. That will change in the next few years. You don't need to be in the super city in order to participate in the excitement of these super cities. The commission, by the way, is intending to work not just on the city, but also suburban and all the rural folks. We have to be sensitive to the fact that everybody has problems, everyone has concerns, and they're very different situations. You don't need to be in the super city. You don't need to be in a New York City or Chicago to participate in the 21st century digital economy, which uh, could uh, very well expedite the flight from those cities that's already ongoing. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Jonathan Williams, Executive Vice President of Policy and Chief Economist at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, good to be back with you and greetings from this land of make-believe here in Washington. Yes. uh, Well, I live in a land of make-believe, too, called uh, Chicago, Illinois, as we were just discussing. And and uh, what about that? What about uh, this idea that, uh, you know, government is the mechanism for recovery uh, and uh, these mayors and some governors holding out for bailouts from the Fed? Well, it's a horrible policy idea, obviously, and it rewards a whole lot of bad behavior of states and cities that have overspent during some of the best economic times in recent memory pre-crisis here with the coronavirus. And uh, because of the strong national economy, because of the tax relief and the regulatory relief in Washington and uh, innovators and entrepreneurs going out there and uh, making their livelihoods and keeping the American economy strong, State and local governments are a huge recipient of this. And now after a couple of months of some very difficult times and government-mandated suppression of the economy in many cases, probably in many cases far beyond uh, what uh, was needed to address real risks that are out there on a health sense, uh, now all of a sudden they're coming to Washington asking for a massive bailout. And it it just sends the wrong message. And uh, the states that have done the tough work, that have balanced their own budgets, just like businesses and families do every single month, their taxpayers are going to be asked to pick up the tab for out-of-control government in places, unfortunately, like Illinois, like California, and like New York and New Jersey, and states that have been hemorrhaging people for now decades, uh, way before uh, this crisis, because of their out-of-control government policies. Yeah, well, uh, states like Wisconsin, where they uh, feature a fully funded pension system, public sector pension system, for example, they're not going to just sit back and watch that happen. Forty-three Republican state lawmakers signing a letter to members of the Wisconsin congressional delegation, urging them to reject any federal bailout of the states and mentioning their neighbor to the south, my home state of Illinois, specifically as a state that shouldn't be rewarded with the kind of dollars they're requesting for decades of terrible fiscal management. Well, and I should also mention, we have a ALEC uh, legislator letter and a state leaders letter that's out there finishing up signatures that will be released in the coming days here, where we have uh, more than 1,400 different state leaders signing on to say, thanks, but no thanks. We actually believe in states governing themselves. We don't want the states to end up being wards of the federal government. It was the states that created the federal government, not the other way around. And we, those of us who believe in federalism uh, believe very strongly in this and that states need to take care of their own problems. Otherwise, we're going to lose this great system of competitive democracy and competitive federalism where states compete each- with each other and uh, it's businesses and taxpayers that win when states compete with each other. Uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has made liability reform, indemnification of businesses reopening uh, as states are reopening the uh, red line that must be crossed by Democrats and some Republicans 
if uh, there is going to be more disaster relief for uh, states and localities or businesses or just about anything else. Is that the right red line to draw? Well, you know, that's a, it's an important issue. As we talk to businesses and many of our state legislators are part-time and they run their own business as well, and they talk about the liability issue as being maybe that one thing that will keep businesses from reopening, even when they're told that uh, health restrictions have been lifted and people have the confidence to come out and, uh, and shop again and be part of the economy. So I tend to think it's an essential issue. Now, whether it happens at the federal level, we know it's already happening at the state level with language being introduced and passed in some cases as states now come back into session, Midwestern states like Ohio and Michigan, uh, Oklahoma out a little bit further west. West, Mississippi down south, but we've seen lots of different liability protection bills put out there that are not meant to protect any wrongdoing. It's just meant to protect and give confidence to businesses to be able to go out and reopen as things are safe to do so. I think it's an essential element that we're talking about here going forward. And isn't it important that it happens at the federal level to prevent against the uh, practice of forum shopping where you're looking for the the Metro East and Illinois, the Cook Counties of the world and other uh, judicial hell holes, as the phrase is used uh, for uh, plaintiff's attorneys. Yeah, I think it's a kind of an all the above approach is happening federally to avoid some of those issues and then having states have it within their statutes at that level in case, let's say, any kind of federal protection is very temporary or limited, uh, states could obviously go and have some more long-lasting relief. So I think it's kind of an all of the above right now where states and the federal lawmakers are both looking at this uh, essential element. What about reforming the uh, unemployment benefit enhancement that has uh, half of the unemployed workers in the country making more money unemployed than they were employed through the month of July? You want to save those jobs. You need to incentivize people to get back to work as opportunities present themselves, don't you? Well, yeah, the unemployment insurance issue is a big one in that, one, states are going to very quickly run out of money given the huge levels of unemployment in their own state funds. But then you mentioned you know, the $600 extra per week that's being subsidized by the federal taxpayers and the federal government right now that in some cases goes above and beyond what those uh, were earning and are taking those benefits were actually earning back in their, in their previous jobs. This was something that Senator Mike Lee, a great fiscal conservative out of Utah, of course, tried to address. He didn't have nearly enough uh, support across the uh, spectrum in the Senate there to have some sort of a cap put where the unemployment benefits would not exceed previous wages. But it gets back to Economics 101. It's, uh, as Art Laffer, my co-author, says, this isn't rocket surgery. This is Economics 101. If you pay people not to work and you tax people who work, do I need to finish that sentence, right? There's going to be a lot of people who are not going to go back to work because the economics are not uh, aligned in such a way. He is Jonathan Williams, Executive VP of Policy and Chief Economist at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Jonathan, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Always great to be with you, my friend. Take care. Rebel, rebel, you torn your dress. Rebel, rebel, your face is a mess. Rebel, rebel, You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And um, Andy Slavitt, who is uh, President Obama's director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services for a time when he was president, went on a uh, Twitter rant over the weekend talking about uh, the what he alleges is the political strategy of Trump to turn 
public health official, quote unquote, into the equivalent of climate scientists, meaning to try and discredit the notion of anybody who has the title public health official or those who don't agree with the administration's position who hold the title public health official. Hmm. Interesting. He uh, right, tweets, among other things, um, the view from Trump advisors not directly involved in the rising death toll is that the CDC wants to burden Trump's chances of driving economic activity in the eight states he cares about. Well, that's funny. The Washington Post, hardly a house organ for the administration, reports uh, from anonymous sources. And in this case, you can actually lend some credibility to The Washington Post because it seems to be a, a reporting against interest. During a task force meeting Wednesday, heated discussion broke out between Deborah Burks, the physician overseeing the administration's covid response and CDC director Robert Redfield. Burks was frustrated at the CDC's antiquated system for tracking virus data, which worry she was worried they were the, the tracking system was inflating stats such as mortality rate and case count by as much as 25 percent. Burks reportedly said there's nothing from the CDC that I can trust. It's a pretty uh, powerful statement from somebody that enjoys good standing, including among most of the press, Dr. Deborah Burks. And, and I don't think the Trump administration is attempting to marginalize her in any way that I've detected. I don't know what Andy Slavitt is detecting, but it seems to be uh, the people on the left that are committed to this narrative of lockdown or bust uh, that don't have a particular exit strategy, but know that uh, Trump is undermining the government response, both at the federal level and state level, or he's incompetent or it's not big enough. I'm not exactly sure what it is because the elites seem to be the elites who believe in big government seem to be all over the board in terms of what should the strategy be. For more on this topic, please to be joined again by John Tyranny. He is a contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist at The New York Times co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Well, um, in your piece, uh, more rec- most recent piece in City Journal, maybe you provide some insight that helps explain Andy Slavitt and others who abide his line of argumentation in uh, contravention of the evidence, uh, which is... Um, there's you just have a solidarity and belief in big government. And so there's nothing that's going to shake that solidarity. The problem with any government failure is uh, it wasn't big enough. Yeah, you know, there is just this this fundamental yearning people have to be some people, especially on the left. And we all have it to some extent. But this yearning to work, you know, that there's a problem out there. We're all going to work together and solve it. And people, you know, we in. In, in the City Journal piece, I talk about the clapping we do, you know, at, at 7 o'clock every night here in New York and around, around the country people are doing this. And it feels good that, oh, we're all in this together, we're going to fight this problem together. And it's this really primal heritage from, you know, our hunter-gatherer days when, you know, there'd be 25 people or maybe 100 people who would all be chanting and singing, and they're all working toward a common goal. And it helps them achieve it problem today is we imagine that our band of you know of brothers and sisters here is the, is the whole nation that we're all in this together and we have to have big government the national government leading us all to together to do this i mean that's why socialism you know keeps appealing to people we're all in it together we're taking care of each other you know that's why these big government schemes you know no matter how often socialism fails no matter how badly we see these federal programs work 
there's still this instinctive yearning to, oh, we're all in this together and we just have to do it. Now, you know, people on the right have this, you know, the, the whole thing about patriotism, patriotic country music, and, and the right has this feeling we're all in this for our troops and stuff. So that's, you know, so, but on the right, there's always been this tradition among conservatives that we look for this emotional unity and solidarity. We look toward it more in, in, in what, you know, Burke called little platoons in churches yes. and family and community. And the left tends to find that in big government. When we come back with City Journal contributing editor John Tierney, I want to talk about the left's incantations in lieu of well-considered public policy. More with John Tierney coming up. I want to fly like an eagle to the sea. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal. I want to go back to what you were saying, and one more consideration in terms of the conservatives' perspective, how we come to the table with the disposition of Thomas Jefferson when he said, if I could not go to heaven, but with a party, I would not go at all. Uh, you know, that, 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 that there's a, you know, I understand doing things, you know, in collaboration and voluntary organizations like you were describing the little platoons. But by the same token, I mean, you rise or fall based on your own merits. And that's how it should be. I am my brother's keeper, but ultimately I should be judged on my own merits. And that's that also right. seems it, to be distinct. Yeah, no, it's very distinct. Um, I write about this economist, Dan Klein, and and he quotes Hayek, you know, the great economist, who talked about the idea of social justice is absolutely meaningless. You know, that our modern society evolved because we trust in, we have rules for individuals. There are things, individuals, you're responsible for your conduct. There are things you cannot do to other people. And social justice is this like Stone Age heritage that, that we all have one idea that we're all working for and that it doesn't matter what the individual does. It's what the social justice is, that we've all decided there's one goal. And we we all have different goals and we all have different ideas of what fairness is and the system that works that made our society prosperous and free is that we hold individuals accountable for their actions but we give them the freedom to make their you know choices within those rules and the problem with this you know the lockdown and all this is just this idea we're going to have one rule for the whole society the how we're all going to act together and it's just dysfunctional i mean i'm in new york and it's crazy that, I mean, even here where we've had it bad, you know, I still, there's a guy next door to me who's been trying to build, you know, three houses on a lot, and they won't let the construction workers out there. I mean, he's losing money every day. I mean, there's no reason that construction workers can't be working outside now. And you just see this all over the place, that this lockdown has just gone on so long, and there's no rationale for it anymore, you know, for most of it. Yeah, and, and, there's, and there's this magical thinking complemented by, the incantations, again, going back to Andy Slovic's Twitter rant, regulation. Oh, they're going to deregulate the nursing homes, and this is what... 
Uh, oh, really? Uh, deregulate the nursing homes, and this is what caused the problem with nursing homes, where you have anywhere, you know, depending on the states with significant outbreaks, from a plurality to a supermajority of deaths occurring inside nursing homes, long-term care facilities. And yet there was a report out two weeks ago by ABC7 in New York that found 75% of nursing homes in the country are not in compliance with regulations as pertaining to how they would respond to a viral outbreak within their facility. So here again, if I just say regulation, then I I can wash my hands and I'm done with it. It will be perfectly adhered to. There will be perfect oversight. There'll be no unintended consequences because we have a regulation. Right, and the regulations can be deadly. You know, here in New York, one of the, the scandals that has come out in the last in a week or two is that in the middle of this pandemic, they issued a regulation requiring nursing homes to take in yes. a, somebody with a COVID infection. And Cuomo's and, defending I mean, it. Yeah, and it's just crazy. I mean, and the nursing home directors are saying, please, we don't have any way to isolate them. Please put them somewhere else. And there were other places. But no, we have a regulation, and you've got to follow the rules. That was the case of regulation being deadly. And, you know, the idea that we can't trust people to make their own decisions on on these things, that there has to be one rule for when every business opens and when every this, it's just this idea that we're all in it together and we have to all make the same rule, and you just can't make these rules to work for everyone. Well, and, and also, too, when you have uh, governors like Mike DeWine, who ha- has uh, shown an absolute willingness to shut down, but it has also balanced that with a recognition that he needs consent of the governed when it comes to the holistic response by the state. You have uh, this county board chairman in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania, which is uh, Harrisburg, which is the state capital, is the county seat of Dauphin County. This guy, Jeff Haste, who basically said, look, enough is enough. It's time to reopen the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, return our state to the people, not run it as a dictatorship, one man, the governor. And he goes through the data in terms of what's happening in Dauphin County. 65% of the deaths are in nursing homes and so on and so forth. We should focus our efforts on making sure nursing homes have the supply, staff testing, whatever else they need to protect their residents and staff. Our healthcare and hospital systems have shown they can handle the uh, caseload and any projected caseload, which is consistent with the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center director said that the healthcare infrastructure there. And so, look, we got to reopen, and I don't care what the governor says. Well, here's a politician. He's the head of a local unit of government, and he's just to be discarded because he's not pro-big government just for big government's sake. That's absolutely right. You know, my parents live in this kind of assisted living or independent living for elderly people, and it's run by UPMC, the University of Pittsburgh's big system, and it's run very well. Nobody there has COVID in it, and they've managed it very well on their own. And, you know, that's where the attention should be focused, not shutting down. I mean, the economic toll on this is going to be terrible. How are we going to pay for services for the elderly with the budget deficits and, and, and the economic losses that everyone is sustaining? It's just, it's gotten into this crazy idea where, where the um, you know, politicians, it's partly this big kumbaya, we're all in this together, we have to have one rule for everyone. And it's also, you know, I mean, just to, you know, to plug my book, The Power of Bad, about negativity by it, that they've just used fear and politicians are so afraid of being blamed if there's 10 deaths, you know, I'll be blamed for it. They'd rather just shut everything down and avoid any risk of anything going wrong. But we've seen, you know, that in Georgia and South Dakota, the governors there took all kinds of heat for uh, for wanting to open the economy or not shut it down in the first place, and this guy hasn't fallen. 
you know, they're doing fine, and then the rest of the country should learn from that. Well, right, and, and just to your point, I mean, the uh, lead story in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, factories closed for good as coronavirus cuts demand, and there's a dishware maker in North Carolina, furniture foam maker in Oregon, Caterpillar considering closing plants in Germany, boat and motorcycle maker Polaris plans to close a plant in Syracuse, Indiana, Goodyear plans to close a plant in Gadsden, Alabama. I mean, the idea that, um, hey, 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 you know, we're going to just shut everything down until this thing is eliminated, until there's a viral antiviral treatment and then we'll snap back up when we can. Well, there are going to be places and people, significant numbers that will not be able to snap back up because they're not going to be there. Right. Uh I mean, people have this idea that the government can turn the economy on and off. They said, you know, that they can prime the pump and they can make up fiscal stimulus. But, you know, a free market system works as all these individuals, you know, nobody can mandate. And when you suddenly order everyone to stop, there's all kinds of consequences that you can't undo. He is John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter and columnist at The New York Times and co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Maybe I'm a little bit too, too golf focused, uh, but it is a spring and uh, people should be getting out. Think about this as uh, the outdoors generally, but yeah, golf specifically. It was uh, Notre Dame coach Lou Holtz, his uh, four, four things everyone needs, sort of his words of wisdom to live by. Everybody needs something to do. Everybody needs someone to love. Everybody needs something to hope for. And of course, everyone needs someone to believe in. Uh, someone he, he believes in, Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm in that camp. Going back to the something to hope for, number three, I'm hoping I'm uh, still around on May 24th to watch Peyton Manning and Phil Mickelson versus Tiger Woods and Tom Brady. That's the twosome, this uh, made-for-TV uh, golf match. And uh, it's off to a good start, even though we're a few weeks away, a couple weeks away, I suppose, I guess. Uh, Peyton Manning uh, with some trash-talking of Tom Brady, since Tom Brady was in the news recently thrown out of a park in Tampa Bay for uh, working out by himself, speaking of nonsensical shutdown rules, working out in a park by himself, thrown out by uh, a a municipal employee because the parks shut down. Peyton picked up on that to uh, start to generate some interest in the match coming up in a couple of weeks. The course, you know, the tournament had to be in Florida, you know, after Tom's B and E arrest, uh, you know, with the ankle monitor, he couldn't leave the state, um, so it had to be in Florida. Uh, Tiger and I talked to the sheriff in Tampa. He's going to be allowed to go to Palm Beach to play. Uh, I'll be honest, I've never played Tom very well on his home turf, and so maybe this is considered a neutral site. And I would have loved to have had this tournament in a place where they don't like Tom very much: Indianapolis, Denver, Boston. <laughs> You know, after he just betrayed them and broke their hearts. So, Palm Beach, 
is the best we can probably do. Uh, look, I think the teams are fair. I think, uh, you know, Phil chose the right partner and Tom together. You know, they have 11 championships. Tiger and I have 17, the way I count it, right, Tiger? <laughs> well, I got it. So I apparently got the reverse, right? So it's Tiger and Peyton and Brady and Mickelson. Okay, whatever. But uh, that's something to look forward to on May 24th, particularly if you're residing in a lockdown state at least till month's end like I am. So uh, Illinoisans and uh, Michiganders and Virginians, so on and so forth, uh, will at least have something to look forward to, if not, uh, you know, uh, business activity. Uh, speaking of something else that you should consume while uh, under shutdown or partial shutdown as you're trying to get yourself back to pre-pandemic life. No Safe Spaces, this is the number one political documentary of 2019 produced by our our colleague and friend Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla documenting the assault on free speech in America. You can watch it for a limited time, nosafespaces.com. For Dan Prof Show listeners, use the discount code SAFE25 for 25% off the on-demand streaming of No Safe Spaces at nosafespaces.com. Also allows you to watch as many times as you want until the end of May. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.